0: Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 5 through chapter 2, verse 1. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, that song that we just listened to, that is the cry of our hearts. Draw me ever nearer. Heavenly Father, those are easy words for us to say, draw me nearer. But it's much harder than to submit to what it takes for you to do that in us. We have to remind ourselves time and time again, even as we confessed in song earlier, be still my soul. Rest and trust in your God, for he is drawing you near. He is accomplishing his purpose in you. Be still, my soul, even in disappointment, even in grief, and even in fear. Be still and rest, for your God is God. Heavenly Father, may that be the the true cry of our hearts. Jesus, draw me ever nearer. Whatever it takes, whatever that looks like, whatever pain and grief and disappointment that it takes for me to be like You, make me like You. Mold me. Change me for Your glory. Heavenly Father, even this morning as we come to this passage, use Your Word in our lives. May Your Spirit take the Word May you apply it to our hearts and to our minds, molding us into your image, so that you are honored in all that is said and done in this hour. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Continuing a series we started last week in Habakkuk, we come to verse 5 this morning. When I was about six years old, my family had the opportunity to get a dog. Now the dog that I had growing up was not a very fierce dog. Her name was Bubbles. But she seemed fierce to me. I remember those first few days and weeks when we got Bubbles, how terrified I was of her. And she wasn't very big. She was a Maltese. She was, she was five pounds maximum. And when we got her, even smaller. But she was full of energy. And I remember getting her, and I remember bringing her home. And I was terrified of her. Because if you were down on the ground, she would jump all over you, and she would scratch you, and then she was just full of energy. And I was terrified of her. And it was almost a game. I would, I would run from the chair to the couch And from the couch to the dining table and from the the dining room table to my room trying to, to time it just right so that Bubbles couldn't get me. I was terrified of her. But that was the problem, is that I would run everywhere I was going. And so Bubbles, in her mind, thinks that I'm playing with her and so she runs after me and she jumps on me. I'm sure that my parents tried to calm me down. I'm sure they tried to explain to me, Bubbles isn't trying to kill you. She's just trying to play with you. She thinks that you're playing with her, but I didn't listen. I couldn't see it. You see, from my terrified six-year-old perspective, Bubbles was out to get me. And the fact that every time I touched the floor, she came running at me full force, and she jumped on me was all the proof that I needed. Bubbles was out to get me. The reality, of course, that we all know, is that my parents were right. Bubbles just wanted to play. And as I ran for the sofa uh, and the chair, as I ran to my room, she thought that I was playing with her, so she would run after me. And the reality is that if I would have simply calmed down, if I would have walked where I was going, if I'd have taken two seconds to pause and to pet her... She would have calmed down. She would have walked beside me. My parents understood that. They had a better perspective. They had more experience with dogs. They spoke from a place of knowledge and experience. And although their advice may have sounded good when I was safely on the couch, when I stepped on the floor in those few seconds when Bubble just came made a dart for me. It was hard to believe what they said in those seconds. As I'm standing there and I see her, I can hear her claws running down the hall. I see her making a dart straight towards me. In those few seconds, it's hard to believe what my parents told me, that she's not out to get you. Every instinct in my body told me to jump back on that couch or to run to the chair. And my parents said, trust me, she just wants to play. Just pat her and she'll calm down. Life is often like that, is it not? As long as we feel safe and comfortable, it's easy to believe that God is good. As long as our circumstances make sense to us, it's easy to believe in the sovereignty of God and to find hope and rest in that. There are times when we come to church and it is easy to rejoice. It's easy for us to align our hearts and our minds with the songs that we sing and the passages that we read. Just as there are days when it is easy to trust God, there are also times of intense struggle. There are times like those few seconds when my feet first hit the floor and Bubbles came running at me full force. This illustration would have been a lot more powerful if our dog wasn't named Bubbles. (laughs) As a six-year-old, it was terrifying. (laughs) But in those first few moments when my feet hit the floor, everything in me said to run. My circumstances seem to contradict everything that my parents had told me. And in life, we go through seasons when nothing seems to make sense. In life, we go through, through seasons when our circumstances seem to be proof that our faith is foolish. When nothing makes sense. That's when it's hard to trust God. That's when it's hard to to rest in Him, to find hope in Him. It's one of these seasons of darkness in which Habakkuk finds himself as we come to Habakkuk 1 5. You may remember last week in the first four verses as we introduced the book of Habakkuk, as Habakkuk cries out to God, Do you not see what is happening? Do you not see the violence that overruns on the streets of Jerusalem? Do you not see the idolatry? Do you not see the wicked who triumph and the righteous who suffer? Do you not care, God? Where are you? And the interesting thing, what what makes Habakkuk very unique is that God actually answers him. As we come to verse 5 today, God answers Habakkuk. Yet it's not necessarily the answer that Habakkuk was looking for. And in the end, it seems to bring more questions than it does comfort. And so then the question becomes, Well, what do you do when life doesn't make sense and you don't understand what God is doing? What do you do when you find yourself in the same shoes as Habakkuk is here, when when even God himself answers you and still it doesn't make sense? And that's where we'll find our hope this morning. That as believers, our hope is not in understanding what God is doing. Our hope is in knowing who God is. That is the truth that we will cling to this morning and find hope in. So how does knowing who God is bring comfort to a weary, confused, or troubled heart? This morning, as we work our way through this passage, we'll see how the unchanging character of God gives hope to Habakkuk in the midst of very violently changing times. First thing we see in verses 5 through 11 is unbelievable. 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 Look among the nations, verse 5, and watch. This is God answering Habakkuk. Look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you. Look and see. The first thing we see here in verse 5, the very beginning of verse 5, is a personal invitation. It begins with an invitation. Habakkuk has poured his heart out to the Lord. He is burdened for his people. He is jealous for his God. And as you come to Habakkuk 1.5, the Lord answers him. And he answers with an invitation to come and see and marvel at what I am doing. Look among the nations and watch be astounded. What is there when you look out among the nations? What is there that is so astounding? It is the sovereign hand of God that is at work. The sovereign hand of God that is at work. In fact, that's what he goes on to say on the rest of the verse, into verse 6. Be astounded. Why? For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe though it were told you, for indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans. God is at work. Was not that Habakkuk's cry in the first four verses? Where are you, God? Do you not see? Do you not care? God comes with an invitation. Look. Look and be astounded. I am at work. I do see. I do care. I am at work. You see, just because Habakkuk could not see what the Lord was doing does not mean that the Lord was not doing something. I think so often it's easy for us to read a book like Habakkuk and, and condemn him, right? Right? It's easy for us to say, how, how could you doubt God so intently, so brazenly, question Him? Of course God is at work. And yet the reality is, if we are honest with ourselves, that we are no different. In fact, it takes much less than the threat of conquest, than rampant violence and rebellious idolatry. It takes much, much less to send us into a tailspin of doubt. And we must remember that when you don't see what God is doing in the present, pause to look what God has done in the past. Remember what God has promised to do in the present and in the future. Take a step back and look. Behold the work of your God. God does not audibly reassure us of his sovereign work in the world today as he does here with Habakkuk. But that does not mean that we cannot pause and look to count our blessings, as the old hymn tells us. That does not mean that we cannot look at the word of God and see what God has done, and see what he promises, what he is doing today and back up and look around and see evidence of it all around us. Your sovereign God is at work. He does see, and he is accomplishing his purposes, even if you don't see it. In fact, what you see here in Habakkuk, verses 5 into the beginning of verse 6 is that not only is God at work in Habakkuk's day, not only does God see Habakkuk's specific situation, but God is at work on a much larger scale than Habakkuk can even begin to comprehend. Look among the nations, I am at work all around the world. Long before Habakkuk's day, long before Habakkuk's cry, long before Habakkuk's complaints, God was already at work in the world, raising up nations and kings for his purposes. This situation has not caught God by surprise. The Lord is never caught by surprise. His sovereign hand is never laid. His purposes are never threatened. And his rule is never in jeopardy. Take a step back, Habakkuk. Take a step back and look out. And see what I am doing. I am at work in ways that you will never comprehend. What specifically is it that God's sovereign hand is doing? And that's really what you see in verses 6 to 11. Indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans. The Lord here tells Habakkuk that he is raising up the Babylonians to judge Judah because of their sin. Essentially, that's what it comes down to. In these verses, Habakkuk has cried out God, don't you see the sin of Judah? Don't you see the violence that runs wild on the streets? The idolatry? And God responds, I do see. In fact, not only do I see, I am already at work preparing an army and rising up a nation to judge them. God's divine instrument of judgment is Babylon. In fact, this little detail, this is one of the details that helps us to date Habakkuk. We talked about this a little bit last week, as there's no um, date or no king associated with the book, which makes it somewhat difficult, but this, the circumstances make it fairly easy. The Babylonians quickly rose to power. They completed their conquest of Assyria in 609 B.C., And then in 605 B.C., Babylon conquered Judah and carried the first wave of captives into exile. And that first wave of captives that was carried into exile in 605 B.C. was Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Therefore, we know that Habakkuk is written sometime prior to 605 when Babylon first came because God tells him here, I'm raising them up. And yet, um, Late enough to where Habakkuk knows of their rising power and of their wickedness. And so it has to be, most likely, sometime between 609 to 605 B.C. That's extra. That's just a detail. I enjoy those kind of details. I love history. I love kind of placing things in history. So here in verses 6 to 11, the Lord goes on to describe this terrible nation that he is raising up to bring judgment on Judah. And really, when you look at what the Lord says here, it it is terrifying. Indeed, I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. They are a quick nation. They are fast. They are powerful. They are conquerors. They are imposing. They They are hungry for conquest. Verse 7 goes on, they are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Again, verse 8, referencing their, the, the swiftness with which they conquer their horses. are swifter than leopards and more fierce than evening wolves. More fierce than evening woods wolves. MacArthur notes that evening wolves are like wolves whose hunt drags on into the evening because they are not satisfied. And so like wolves, Babylon's army uh, displayed extraordinary stamina and an undaunted eagerness to attack for the purposes of devouring the spoils of victory. They are a nation which is unsatisfied and still marching forward. Not only are they fierce and hungry for conquest, but they are powerful and skilled as conquerors as well. As you see in verses nine to ten, they all come for violence, their faces are set like the east wind, they gather captives like sand. They scoff at kings and princes and scorn and are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap up earthen mounds and seize it. This describes their conquest as the, the wind that blows sand where it pleases. Babylon marches on. The armies that rise up against them, they're just blown away like the wind blows the sand, like nothing before them. They mock the strongest fortresses as they conquer and keep moving unhindered like the wind over a wall, as you see into verse 11. Then his mind changes, he transgresses, he commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Perhaps that is the most shocking detail. It's not their power. It's not their pride. It's not their violence. It is their disregard for God. They ascribe this power to their God. The ESV phrases it this way. Guilty men whose own might is their God Their own might is their God. Not only do they not give glory to God, they take all the glory for themselves. They are a godless and and, and empty people who take all the glory for themselves. No recognition of God. So that's the first thing you see. As, As the Lord responds to Habakkuk, He says, You will not believe it though I tell you. I am at work on a scale that you cannot comprehend. But then as you come to verses 12 into the beginning of chapter 2, this is unfathomable to Habakkuk. And he starts in verse 12 with a confession. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. Here Habakkuk responds to God's shocking, unfathomable revelation. And he kind of begins with a striking uh, contrast here. Unlike the shallow God of the Babylonians who worship their own strength, Habakkuk's God is eternal. He is set apart. He is powerful. In fact, just take a second to pause here and to note um, the change in Habakkuk from verses 1 to 4. While he had questioned God, do you not see? Do you not know? Where are you, God? Now he confesses God. Clearly, he praises Him. This is who you are. You are everlasting. You are holy. You are powerful. And those facts give Habakkuk immediate hope. He says, We shall not die. This is who you are. Are are you not from everlasting, O Lord God, my, my Holy One? We shall not die. Even as the, as the Lord gives him this information that I'm raising up this nations to come and, and to conquer you. That's kind of an odd way to respond to that, is it not? Wow, God, you are powerful. We're not going to die. He just told you he's raising up an army to come against you. But Habakkuk knows who God is. He may not fully understand what God is doing, but this he knows, that his eternal, holy, powerful God will not abandon his people to death. And while Habakkuk had doubted and questioned God's justice, now he finds hope in God's mercy and wisdom and faithfulness. As I step back and I look and I see what you're doing on this grand scale as you're raising up these armies, I remember that you are holy. I remember that you are from everlasting. That you are merciful and we shall not die. The faithful God of Judah has marked his people for correction. And he has appointed Babylon to bring judgment, but he will not let his people be annihilated. This is the answer to Habakkuk's prayer. God does see. He doesn't need me to defend him. God is at work. But note that this raises a complaint, a second complaint from Habakkuk in verses 13 to 17. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil. Again, God's holiness. Cannot look on wickedness. So why do you look on those who deal treacherously? And hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person who is more righteous than he You see, God's answer has brought up a second complaint in Habakkuk's mind. How can a holy God use wickedness for his purposes? How can a holy God use wickedness for his divine purposes? Even here, in this question, in this complaint, I think we see seeds of change in Habakkuk's hearts and words. Already, being reminded of God's person and work brings a change in perspective. Habakkuk had questions God's holiness and justice. In verses one to four, you hear in Habakkuk 11:3, "He confesses God's holiness clearly. This is who you are. You, you are the one." of purer eyes than to behold evil. You cannot look on wickedness. This is what I know to be true. And yet he's still struggling to reconcile what he knows to be true of God, his holiness and his justice and his purity, and what he can see and understand in the world around him. That's where he's struggling. This is who I know you are. This is what I see. How can this be? If this is who you are, how can this be happening? How can a holy God use a wicked people for his purposes? How is it just that the instrument of Judah's judgment is more guilty than Judah is? they are more guilty than the ones they are judging. In fact, it's almost as if in Habakkuk 1, 14-17, it's almost as if, as if Habakkuk repeats back to God exactly what God has just said. Right? God told Habakkuk who this Babylon was. They are powerful and they are swift and they are violent and they do not confess me they worship their own strength. God's already told Habakkuk that. But Habakkuk here kind of repeats all of that back to God. It's as if he assumes that, that God must have not fully understood what he's just said. Have you ever been in a conversation with someone where, where they've been trying to make a point and they say something and the, what they say actually counters exactly what they're trying to prove? They're saying the exact opposite. And, and you kind of pause and you say, okay, slow down. And say that again. Right? Say that again. It does not make sense what you're saying. Think through it. It's almost as if that's what Habakkuk's doing here. He goes back and says exactly what God has just said. Verses 14 to 17. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Therefore, they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous. Their food is plentiful. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? Habakkuk here draws attention to Babylon's wickedness and violence. In fact, life is so cheap to the Babylonians that they treat their enemies no different than catching fish or squishing bugs. There is no regard for life. In fact, in verses 1 to 4, Habakkuk complains of the violence that runs rampant on the streets of Jerusalem with no justice. And yet, the violence in Jerusalem is nothing compared to the violence of Babylon. In fact, in verse 16, Habakkuk again repeats their total disregard for God. It's as if they go out and they catch these nations with their, with their net. They don't care about them. They just slaughter them. And then they sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous and their food is plentiful. They worship the, their net. They worship their strength. They, they don't have no regard for you, Lord. How can a holy and just God raise up such a wicked and unrepentant people for His purposes? Yes, Judah is guilty, and they deserve judgment. And Habakkuk longed to see the holiness of God upheld and the justice of God come. And yet he looks at God's instrument of judgment. And he sees that they are even more guilty. How can that be? Habakkuk here is wrestling with some very complex truths. What do you do? When like Habakkuk, what what you know to be true about God and what you believe does not line up with what you see and feel. What do you do? I think we see a little bit of that in verse 1 of chapter 2. You submit your limited, sin-skewed perspective to the sovereign hands of your good God. What do you do when life doesn't make sense and, and you can't reconcile what you know to be true about God with, with what you see and feel? You submit your limited, sin-skewed perspective to the sovereign hands of your good God. That's what we see in verse 1, Habakkuk's hope. Habakkuk's hope. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Habakkuk does not understand what God is doing. But here he purposes to wait, to listen, and to learn. I don't understand what you're doing, but I'm going to plant myself right here and I'm going to wait until I learn. Even though there's a boldness in Habakkuk's complaint, I think there's a humility in Habakkuk's faith. There's almost a, a, an assumption here in Habakkuk that I must be missing something. I must be missing something. I must not have the full picture because this is what I know to be true, this is what I see, and they're not lining up. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait. I'm going to trust. I'm going to hope that God knows what He's doing. I will wait here for the Lord. I will ponder what God will say. Even before the Lord responds, the Habakkuk sits completely overwhelmed and confused, he has a bias toward faith. He sets his mind and his heart to submit to God and to learn of God. Look at the way it's phrased here in the New King James. He will, uh, I will watch to see what he will say to me. The last two lines of verse 1. And what I will answer when I am corrected. When I am corrected. There, there must be something that's not line, lining up. So I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait. And then I'm going to see how I'll answer when I'm corrected. There's an assumption there that I'm, I'm missing something. The ESV words it a little bit differently when he uh, answers uh, my complaint, but it's still the the same idea. I will wait for God to answer. I must be missing something. So I'm going to submit my perspective to God, and I'm going to wait on him. And he waits with a bias toward faith. He sets his heart and his mind to submit to God and to learn of God. It's not that he's sitting here with a I cannot wait to respond to what God, I've got a great argument. It's a bias towards faith. I will sit and I will wait and I will hear what God will say because I must be missing something. I thought we would all have that mindset. A bias toward faith. An inclination to first trust and not to doubt or fear. To recognize that you don't have to know what God is doing to know who God is. And so the big idea as you come to the end of this passage is this, that the hope for believers is not in knowing what God is doing, but in knowing who God is. Habakkuk can't reconcile it in his mind. He doesn't understand. But this he knows. He knows who his God is. And that's where he plants his flag. That's where he hopes. That's where he waits. Habakkuk one, 12, 1 uh, five through 2:1 is a call to unshakable trust in God. It's a call to believe. Even in the darkest night, when up feels down and down feels up, when everything that you have found comfort in is questioned and is falling away, even so, believe. Have a bias toward faith. when your world doesn't make sense, remember that your God is God and He is still at work. Your circumstances don't change who your God is. You don't need to know why. You don't need to know what He is doing. You just need to remember who He is. Your God is the same God as Habakkuk. Your God is eternal. He is holy. He is powerful. He is faithful. He is good. He is sovereign. Your God is in all places. He knows all things. He has all power. Your God is just and merciful and gracious. He is all wise. He is incomparable. He is creator, he is sustainer, and he is worthy of worship. And so regardless of how you feel or what you see, don't ever give up hope because God will never give up hope on you. Wait on the Lord. And while, you're, while you wait, remember who he is and what he has done. The hope for believers is not in knowing what God is doing, but in knowing who God is. We find hope in that this morning. Couple points of application. How do you respond? If you find yourself in a place like Habakkuk, if you feel overwhelmed and confused and you don't understand what God is doing, when your circumstances in your life makes no sense, Number one, belief. Have a bias towards faith. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you know who your God is. Cling to verses, promises that you have in his word. Don't let doubt creep in. Even when you don't understand, sit and wait with a bias towards faith. This doesn't make sense, but this I know, and this I will cling to. If you're here this morning and you never... Place your faith in Christ alone. If God is not your God, who you've submitted to, if you've not confessed your sins and believed on Jesus Christ to salvation, I would call you even this morning, turn in faith to Christ alone. Life won't make sense any other way. There is one way. It's in Christ alone. Find hope and meaning and salvation and forgiveness in Him even today. Secondly, submit. Sit with a a bias towards faith, waiting on God, choosing to believe in Him. And while you are doing that, submit to Him. Submit your perspective to Him. Submit your desires to him. Submit your hope to him. I don't understand, but this I know. And because I know this about you, I'm willing to do this now, while I wait. And confess. Maybe, as you wait on your God, as you meditate on who he is and and who you are, you see that there is sin in your life. Confess. Turn and wait and believe and submit to Him. Believe in your God. Submit to Him. and Confess your sins. And find hope and forgiveness even when life doesn't make sense. The hope for believers is not in knowing what God is doing, it's in knowing who God is.